Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. You know those days when it feels like problems just pop out of nowhere? Sure do. The helpful folks at State Farm do. Like a fender bender when you're already late. Or a thief breaking into your home, making off with your new flat screen TV. Luckily, there are more than 19,000 agents who are there for you. Because when it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are ready to help. Find an agent today at statefarm.com. What caused this damage? Binge mode. Then you have earned binge mode as your signet. I shall craft it. I can't accept. Binge mode contains adult content and spoilers. Why would a podcast contain adult content and spoilers? It did not know it was my enemy. And now binge mode. Welcome back, Mando. Now put the package down. Step aside. I'm going to my ship. (laughs) You put the bounty down and perhaps I'll let you pass. The kid's coming with me. Binge Mode Star Wars. Mm. Proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, editor-in-chief of TheRinger.com. What a great website! So good. (laughs) So good. Joining me today, now that he's finished proving that his reputation was not unwarranted, it's Ringer Senior Creative, your Jedi Master, Jason Concepcion. Mal, how many fobs did you give out? I gave out all of them. At least there's only one binge mode Star Wars where we're exploring the wider Star Wars universe from the Skywalker saga films, the anthology films, to the Mandalorian, plus numerous other facets of a galaxy far, 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 far away. All leading up to the release of Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker on December 20th. Please make the journey to Mandalore with us by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Give us those five-star ratings as our signet or the Mando (laughs) will disintegrate you with one shot from his elephant gun rifle. That thing is OP and it must be nerfed immediately. (laughs) Developers nerf that rifle. Oh, man. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans and which is an excellent place to post photos of your new armor please head to theringer.com slash shop as well to check out our binge mode merch. Fits perfectly under a jetpack. Gotta get one of those. Gotta get one. Last time on binge mode, we answered your holograms on another Ask the Underscore. And today we're diving deep. Deep! Into the Mandalorian Chapter 3, The Sin. As always, spoiler warning. While we know nothing about the future of this show, we will be going deep on details from this episode of The Mandalorian and the entire Star Wars saga to date. Take an official canon and legends, hashtag not canon into account. So load up your whistling birds because it's time to protect Baby Yoda at all costs. Mel, how can one be a coward if one chooses this way of life? How can one be a coward if one chooses the plot points? So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happens in the third episode of The Mandalorian 
by heading to a podcast studio far, far away and queuing up the opening call. Let's do it. Mando flies back to the still mysteriously unnamed planet to deliver little baby Yoda to the client. On the way, he receives a message from Grief Karga congratulating him. Quite an episode for Grief Karga. Grief Karga. Carl Weathers is having out. fun. Carl Weathers out here living his life to the fullest. It's amazing to watch. Little baby Yoda, unaware of what awaits him, and we do now know that it's a him. That's right. Wants to play with a metal sphere. The cap, the knob of the throttle on the Razor Crest dash it is a heart-meltingly precious sequence. And Mando cruelly takes it away from him, grabs little baby Yoda by the scruff of his robe, plops him back in his cradle. They look at each other for a moment, but really, baby Yoda looks into our hearts <laughs> and none of us will ever be the same. Mando is greeted by stormtroopers at the client's safe house. One of them is a little rough Fuck with LBY's guy. cradle, upsetting Mando. Hands off. Not upsetting him enough to uh, hand the kid over. The client, meanwhile, is absolutely overjoyed. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Dr. Pershing <laughs> declares the child, quote, very healthy. Yeah. Mando asks, hey, dude, how many fobs did you put out on the market here? And the client is bemused. He had to make sure that the asset was acquired. You understand how it works. I'm sorry. But any sore feeling surely would be soothed by the reward. A Camtono of Beskar, as promised. Little baby Yoda whines as he's taken away by Dr. Pershing. Those, oh! those cries. Come on. Shredded me. Mando asks what they plan to do with the kid. And the client rebukes him, noting how uncharacteristic it is of a Mandalorian, a professional of a bounty hunting guild, to ask questions like this once the job is over. And then the client vaguely threatens Mando, noting that these days the rare Beskar is easier to find than a Mandalorian. Mando returns to the hideout where the Mandalorian diaspora gathers. The armor is impressed with this hall. The other Mandalorians come to gaze upon the ingots of Beskar, more steel than any of them have likely seen in one place in a very long time. The smith offers to craft Mando new Beskar armor. A hulking Mandalorian, Paz Vizsla. Clan Vizsla. Notes the seal of the empire on the bars. This steel, he says, was taken during the Great Purge, a clearly traumatic event for Mandalore's recent past. Those who survived are living underground like rats, he says. Our secrecy is our survival, the armorer replies. Our survival is our strength. These words do not assuage Paz. The empire destroyed Mandalore, and here's Mando, doing business with these members of the Imperial Remnant. Mando and Paz briefly fight, viral blades quivering. It's like right. when Brienne and Arya <laughs> came to a draw, except you really think except these they two really, might want to kill each really other. Except they went at each other. <laughs> the armor asks Mando if he's ever taken his helmet off or if it's ever been removed by others. Mm -hmm. No. How this, do you brush your teeth? I, think I have that, a lot of questions. Well, a it's lot. like Dune. I think it's like a Dune still suit. Honestly, the Mandalorians are certainly like the way that their terminology is crafted seem very yes. taken from Dune. Du well, Dune, a big influence on George big Lucas, Big influence. As we know. So I think that there's, it's like a still suit where like everything is processed and becomes part of- Your urine becomes your drinking water. Right. And then everything comes out like as an energy bar, like out of the <laughs> side, and then you eat that. Um, this is the way, she says. She offers to craft him a mud horn as his signet. Manda declines, noting that Little baby Yoda, his unwitting enemy, intervened, allowing him to defeat the beast. 
she crafts some whistling birds instead, an Iron Man-esque weapon baked into the gauntlet of his new armor. These are dope. As she hammers his new armor into shape, images of destruction and war flash in his mind, and we see that this slaughter was carried out by battle droids, mm-hmm. potentially placing this event during the Clone Wars. Oh, love a B2. Yeah. Mando and his new armor return to the cantina to see Grief Karga, and every head in the place turns to look at him with unmasked envy. Yeah. Mando asks how many bounty hunters were given tracking fobs, and the answer is all of them. The reward, the Beskar, is the largest bounty commission ever collected in this parsec for a job. Mando, guilt gnawing at him, wants another job now, one that'll take him as far away as possible. But before he goes, he asks about little baby Yoda. And that's against the code, Cargo notes. If Manda has issues with Imperials doing Imperial shit here in the Outer Rim, he can go to the core. Report them to the New Republic. Ha! Who has time for that? Well, Mando certainly doesn't think it would be worth the effort. No. Mando boards his ship and prepares to take off, but the sight of that little metal ball cap stirs his heart. He turns off the engines and heads back to the client's hideout. In the trash outside is LBY's cradle. This was a gutting moment. Scanning the building, he hears the client and Pershing discussing getting samples from the asset. The client wants the extraction done, whatever the cost. Pershing wants to bring LBY back alive. The client says he can no longer guarantee Pershing's safety. Good. Kill them all. That's my take. Amanda moves <laughs> he <does>. in. <laughs> he does do that. <laughs> well, not Pershing and the client. Not yet, at least. Mando moves in and begins taking out stormtroopers with the ease that we have yes. now come to expect Stormtroopers to fall with. Yeah, from both a Mandalorian (laughs) and a Stormtrooper. (laughs) He reaches Pershing, and Baby Yoda is strapped to a table, unconscious. A tray scanning him, and a torture droid, an interrogation droid, floating menacingly nearby and approaching him. Pershing says that he protected the child. If it wasn't for him, Baby Yoda would already be dead. He also here identifies him as a he. Mando scoops up. Baby Yoda bundles him in a blanket, makes off with that little loaf of Yoda bread. Mando takes out more troopers as he navigates the building, but eventually four troopers get the drop on him. He slowly kneels, places his blaster on the ground alongside the LBY and unleashes those whistling birds. The tiny projectiles home in on the troopers, dropping them one after another. Chekhov's whistling birds. Chekhov's whistling birds. He didn't have to wait long for that to go up on the wall. Seven (laughs) minutes. Meanwhile, every bounty hunter in the area is now targeting Mando. Thanks to those- The fobs. Handy fobs that I will say they're going to have to explain at some point. Not sure how they work. So obviously they are- you can target them on different individuals now. We're, we're going to need, yeah. we're going to need an explanation here soon Soft because this is going to be deus ex tracking fob pretty soon. Karga and the bounty hunters catch up with Mando and Baby Yoda in the town square. Karga tells him, put the kid down. Let's discuss terms. Let's have a chat. Instead, Mando jumps into the waiting droid-driven cart. And you know that that means something because Mando- Hates him. What did he say about droids? Hated him. Hated him. First time he saw he him, He actually him. still yes. hates him. We, we now have an explanation for changed. why. Which we will talk about later. They make it a very short distance. Mando taking out bounty hunters with every shot. Blaster shots, disintegration, flamethrowing, anything at his disposal. Karga shoots the droid, stops the cart, and Mando holds the fighters off admirably, but is- hopelessly outgunned ultimately. 
And then just as he is looking down at that sweet little gumdrop of a face peeking out at him from the blanket folds with the flamethrower fuel running out, all seeming lost. The Mandalorians sally forth from their hidden base to the rescue. Paz tells Mando to go. They'll hold off the fighters. Mando says, now the diaspora will have to relocate. This is the way they both say. Cargo's waiting for Mando on the Razor Crest. Mando shoots him in the chest, right in the place where he knows Cargo's been keeping his own Baskar commission. Takes off. Carga, as Mando seemingly intended, mm-hmm. survives that little fight. Paz flies next to Mando's ship and salutes. I gotta get one of those, Mando says. Paz's jetpack. As they head out into space, LBY reaches for that little metal ball again. Mando unscrews it and hands it to him. So precious. Here's your little metal ball. You want to chew that? You can chew it. It's fine. I'm not sure. Put it in your mouth. It's okay. I'm going to be able to handle the stress of watching The Mandalorian. That's my official take. I'm really enjoying it, but I am so in love with Baby Yoda, so invested that it's just every moment is agony because I'm so worried. Jason? Yes. When one chooses to walk the way of the Mandalore, you are both hunter and prey. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's search our feelings, use the force. The defining theme of this episode is allegiance. Let's start with, of course, Mando and Baby Yoda. Now, alliances are key in Star Wars, from the Rebellion to the Resistance, the Jedi to the Sith, the Empire to the First Order, everything in between. Masters have Padawans, Han has Chewie, and the Thalus Siren's milk-spewing teat has a waiting Luke Skywalker. Mm, he loves that blue milk ever <laughs> since he was a teen growing up in Tatooine. Loves the green milk, too. Yeah. Whatever Amp-a-roo, he can get. Amparu mixing up some blue milk mix. Loves the fresh stuff, loves though. It. Right from the nip. <laughs> in Solo, a Star Wars story. Han, translating Chewie's tale for the assembled by the fireside, says, quote, he's searching for his, uh, I don't know if he said tribe or family. And Tobias Beckett replies, what's the difference? And in Star Wars, there often isn't a difference with the theme that we cherish so deeply and return to so often on this podcast across all of the stories we discuss, the family that you choose, embedded as a cornerstone of this saga. Your blood might dictate your midichlorian count, but mostly your choices dictate your fate. And who you choose to pledge your allegiance to and ask for allegiance from in return can determine the course of your life. Everyone went for Baby Yoda. Everyone. We sensed it when we saw IG-11 there at the base, chapter one. And again, when we saw the Trandoshans come from Mando in chapter two. And it was confirmed in chapter three when Mando learned from grief that every single bounty hunter in the cantina had tried and failed to acquire the child. They're lucky they're alive in that case. It's not just that Mando reached Baby Yoda. It's that Mando chose Baby Yoda, chose to protect him from his fellow bounty hunters, despite what that meant in terms of his violating the code. We'll talk about the code and the bounty hunters guild in the Jedi Temple today. Chose to kill IG-11 rather than see Baby Yoda come to harm. Another breaking of guild law and also the bounty hunter code. Based on some instinctual response, seemingly more his empathy for a fellow foundling than his desire to reap the bigger reward for returning the asset alive. Chapter two, Baby Yoda chose Mando, unleashing his force powers. And we now know, due to both Dr. Pershing's language in episode three and director Deborah Chow's interviews about the episode, that Baby Yoda is in fact a he 
to save Mando from the Mudhorn. But chapter three is where that choice comes to the forefront. And actions amount to more than just reactions in the moment, but the pledging of allegiance that seems bound to alter history and canon alike. We're going to talk about Deborah Chow more later today in the eight, but first woman to direct a live action Star Wars installment. Incredible. Before the moment when Mando swears fealty by going back for baby Yoda. That loyalty is fiercely tested. The episode opens with Mando taking the child back to the planet on which he received the bounty, on which the client is anxiously awaiting his return. As Grief Karga popping in via hologram tells him in horrifying terms, I have no idea if he wants to eat it or hang it on his wall, he says, but he's very antsy. (laughs) Deeply distressing to hear. And yet, Mando does not turn the razor crest around right there upon hearing that. Very concerning. As he's reading his work emails, Baby Yoda is crawling out of his basket toward the ship deck where, much like Big Yoda on Dagobah, Big Yoda. a shiny object has drawn his eye. Mine! 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 <laughs> he reaches for the silver ball atop the throttle, and with the same hand with which he used the force last episode, he unscrews the bobble and he plays with it, popping it into his mouth like so many frogs. And it's an almost unbelievably effective contrast. Mm-hmm. That same reach, that same claw— being used for such seismically different purposes. Baby Yoda might be an immensely powerful force user, but he's also a baby. He might be 50 years old, but he's a kid. He might be capable of stopping a mudhorn, but he loves playtime all the same. When Mando takes that ball away from him and says, it's not a toy, (laughs) Baby Yoda's ears fall with such sadness, just like a kid's would in real life. And when Mando grabs him by the back of his robe collar and lifts him like a little bundle of bread, depositing him back in his basket and then quickly looking back at him, Baby Yoda's facial expression is almost impossible to comprehend. This is an absolute marvel of puppeteering and CGI. And rationally, we understand that. But rationality just kind of exits the second that you see him as his ears droop and his eyes fill with this confusion and sorrow. It is genuinely one of the most heart-wrenching moments that you can imagine witnessing. Baby Yoda is able to convey such emotion, such heart in every look and every squeak and every coup. And though Mando is still attempting to be stoic and indifferent here— This moment clearly affects him, too, because later it is the sight of that silver ball and the reminder of the light that it sparked in Baby Yoda that will lead Mando to act on the bond that he's already feeling. This is something we talked about this weekend offline, but it's clearly the intention of Favreau and Filoni and the other producers of the show to build the emotional rapport necessary for an episodic show like this through— the audience's instinctive gut-level connection with Baby Yoda. And that is the energy that's going to carry us forward because we're denied that mm-hmm. from the Mandalorian, who, right. as we know, has the helmet on and mm-hmm. is, it's you know, he can't emote in the same kind of right. ways. All of this building towards what we think is the eventual reveal of Mando taking off his helmet, which will happen somewhere mm-hmm. later in the season. Mm-hmm. Mando lands the Razor Crest on the planet's surface again, Unlocked and unguarded. <laughs> yeah, he's Come got on, he's man. got to fix this part of his game. I just like <laughs> he has to. You can't put like a bicycle lock on the leg <laughs> or like a put the club on the steering wheel. Like you, there's nothing. Grief's just waiting inside for him later. <laughs> Hide the key in, a, in a, under a rock somewhere. Like what? As 
<laughs> as Grief Cargo will later board to challenge him. And he and the LBY set out directly for the client, mm-hmm. per Cargo's instructions. And we get one of these really wonderful sequences where— This is incredible. We are able to— reconnect with the wonder of Star Wars through the really curious and wondrous eyes of little baby Yoda, who's taking in all these sights and sounds of these aliens here and there, a twilight leaning against a wall and like the people going to and fro and, and droids. The way that not only his eyes widen, but the way that his ears and his hair rustle in the wind and you can feel and see the effect of the new stimuli and the new elements on him and just that absolutely irrepressible curiosity and wonder on his face. It is like, that might be honestly one of my favorite shots in the history of anything. Like it just, I have turned into a puddle watching it. It was was marvelous. It was wonderful. (laughs) Uh, in a Rolling Stone interview with Alan Sepinwall, director Deborah Chow shed some light on the work that they've done with LBY. Quote, we did so much on set. It was remarkable. The puppeteers were amazing. We would talk it through with them, just like I was directing an actor. I just tried to focus on the emotion of what Baby was feeling at the moment and not get into the technical. So I would say, the door's open and now he's scared. He looks to Mando for comfort. We would just talk it through as if we were directing human beings and go straight for the emotion of the baby. That's really amazing. It's it's incredible. I and it's really to, works. It's really it's, working. It's really working. You, you see the look on his face here as he is drinking in these new sites and you just want to be able to watch him grow up and watch him see so many other new it's, things. It's also indicative of how really primal storytelling is, you know, and how— Few moves, effective moves, there really are. Or that you really baby need in, if you're doing them well. danger is one of the most absolute primal kinds of stories that there are. Like I, I was thinking a lot about Children of Men, mm-hmm. the movie from yeah, the yeah. 2006 movie about a future in which no more babies are being born. And then suddenly one baby is born and it's up to this one man who's kind of cynical to kind of like— keep it safe. And through his relationship with this baby, he learns to like, you know, feel hopeful again. And every scene is like that. The tension of like, oh my God, he's, is Mando's going to let this baby go? It's like, how can you not be affected by this? It's also like, we're going to talk about the other Mandalorians and Mando's allegiance to and from them in a few minutes, but it is such an effective contrast to that and to them. Because when you're with the Mandalorians in this episode and so far in the series, you're really thinking about the fragility yeah. of life and the way that life can weigh you down and all of the burdens yes. that come to define you. And when you see Baby Yoda, ears crinkling in the wind, it, you just are thinking about possibility and hope and all that's yet to be discovered. That's such a great note because the contrast is amazing. These armored individuals, they feel so vulnerable in the world that they never take off their armor. Right. Never. Right. They feel so under siege by the dangers of the galaxy that they just can't feel safe at any moment in time, even amongst their own. And you contrast that with this precious, almost defenseless, obviously we know that that he can use the force and is strong with the force, but defenseless little ball of skin wrapped in in just some burlap that is absolutely (laughs) vulnerable to every danger around it. Oh, I'm going to cry. Back on the planet, LBY and Mando pass the astromech-driven speeder on which they'll later attempt to make their escape. 
They pass Jawas. Jawas are everywhere. Everywhere. Jawas <laughs> everywhere. LBY almost seems to squeak with recognition <laughs> when they arrive at the client's lair. His mouth opens in surprise at the gatekeeper droid. And he almost seems to recede into his tunic when the stormtroopers emerge. He's perfect. One of the troopers yanks on his basket, leading Mando to command that they take it easy. He's concerned. All of his instincts are telling him, turn around, this is wrong. And yet, for now at least, he doesn't. And even though Mando doesn't understand what the child did in Chapter 2 when it used the Force, we and Mando know that the child is capable of protecting itself in a moment of peril better than most. But we don't yet know if he can use the Force whenever he wants on command or if it was something that in that moment against the Mudhorn just surged out of him. And plus, there's something about seeing that sweet, tender little face overwhelmed and alarmed in this unfamiliar, clearly threatening surrounding that feels just like a vice around your heart as you're watching it and makes you want to shout out and come to his defense. The client is shouting out as well when he sees him, but in his case, in glee. Yes, 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 yes. Dr. Pershing is also all smiles. Very healthy, he says, scanning Baby Yoda with a red light that leads Baby Yoda to pull his head away, protectively close his eyelids over those shiny orbs. And the light reflects off Mando's helmet as it makes its pass, almost like seeming to scan him as well, connecting him and Baby Yoda once more in this moment, testing him, reflecting also in classic Star Wars fashion the symbolism of what is unfolding in this moment. What does red signify in Star Wars? Darkness, fear, anger, something bad. Keep that helmet reflection in mind. We're going to come back to that later. As Mando receives the Beskar payment, riches beyond imagining, Pershing leads Baby Yoda away. But Baby Yoda, always so eager to absorb his new surroundings, isn't looking ahead for once. He is looking back over his shoulder oh, at Mando. This was the most absolutely gut-wrenching sequence in the entire episode. Stab me in the heart with a vibroblade. <laughs> gut-wrenching. Because I can't bear to see things like this. It's go- painful. <laughs> I was so upset. It was, it was so troubling. True story. Chris Ryan had to pop into my office on Friday morning to ask why I was screaming when and, I was watching this. <laughs> this is the thing about storytelling that is so amazing and manipulative even because you understand you're being emotionally manipulated sure. in that moment. And rationally, I'm like, okay, this is episode three. Right. We're not killing baby Yoda. Doesn't matter. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. Not it's at all. Not for like, a second. Stop. No. <laughs> well, and then if you're watching it with closed captioning, it is exacerbated by the fact that, you know, every time you see baby Yoda happy, it says something like cooing, continues cooing. And here it says whining, crying. And it's yeah. just wrenching to see. And as he's looking back at Mando, there is disbelief and despair on his miraculous little face, crying as his friend, maybe his only friend in his entire life in the entire world, is leaving him behind. It is a shattering moment, and one that leaves even Bando unable to observe the norms of his profession. What are your plans for it, he asks, earning a stiff rebuke in response. How uncharacteristic of one of your reputation. You have taken both commission and payment. Is it not the code of the guild that these events are now? It absolutely is. Forgotten. But he can't forget. No. Not this time. When Mando goes to meet with Karga at the cantina, he gets quite a grin. They all hate you, Mando, because you're a legend. This is an amazing and line reading. Car- <laughs> Every line reading from Carl Weathers is amazing. When he it's incredible. Uh, dismisses the previous bounty hunter right before oh this moment, he's God. like, get out of here. <laughs> 
Like some like 19, like it's Paul incredible. Muni in a 30s gangster. Get there's out of here, there's yo. a touch of the Ian McDermott palpy energy here where he just, he knows how fun He's this is. He's just like, I'm going to chew this fucking scenery. Like even the way he like takes aim at the droid oh, during man. the shootout is like, man, I'm going to milk this. <laughs> Milking this. But Mando isn't interested in flattery, just in information. First of all, how many other hunters were on this job? Oh, how about all of them? Grief Cargus says with echoes of Anakin and the Tusken Raiders, but only Mando managed to actually obtain the asset, earning himself, quote, the richest reward this Parsec has ever seen. And Cargagod is cut to. Mm-hmm. He shows Mando the Beskar that he's got hidden in his mm-hmm. vest pocket. Very notable Cargo- detail that, <laughs> Jack that Jack Mando will perfectly placed. That Mando will <laughs> file away for later. Quote, they're all weighing the Beskar in their minds, he says, but not me. No, I, for one, I celebrate your success because it's my success as well. But for Cargo, for Bounty Hunters, that kind of statement isn't a show of actual unity. It's pure transaction. You make me money. I like you. You cause me problems, as we will see in a bit, and I don't. Mm -hmm. He shows Mando the Beskar, and even though we can't see Mando's face, we can tell that he's appalled to see this material that is so closely related to his culture and his religion in the hands of an outsider. Not just for some guild boss right. to have. Karga offers a trip to the Twi'lek healing baths. <laughs> but like, what does it matter? You dip in your armor, I guess? Yeah, I guess like- I, I'm just imagining a scene now where like Davos goes to find Salador San in the baths and Mando is like <laughs> one tub over- Beskar helmet still on. And also suggests, hey, why don't you buy some spice mm-hmm. and just get high get on your so trip? so high you forget all about it. Amazing <laughs> stuff from Grief Karga. <laughs> Mando knows the only way to forget about this is to take another job immediately mm-hmm. without delay and a job that will take him away as far as possible from where this job happened. Quote, the further away, the better. He wants to keep working, keep earning, and just put some space behind himself. But also now he wants to run away from the feelings of guilt that are stirring within him from the mark LBY, whom he asked Cargo about, has left on his heart. Turns out he can't run away from that. Nobody can. You know, when they first saw little baby Yoda, they hated him. But now, (laughs) absolutely, as soon as they came out with little baby Yoda, everyone, Favreau, Valenia were like, they're going to, I hate this. They're going to hate him. They're going to hate him. They're going to hate him. Absolutely hate him. (laughs) (laughs) Now he's beloved by all. When Mando boards the Razor Crest, boots up his transport, he reaches for the throttle and he sees the missing knob, that little silver ball that Baby Yoda had unscrewed to play with. And we, it's wrenching. We don't need to see Mando's face here. A lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of talk among Mandalorian viewers and fans that, the fact that you can't see Mando's face still three episodes in, despite all the Baby Yoda love, is a real impediment to getting fully invested. But in a moment like this, you don't need to see his face to know what he's feeling. The score indicates it. And his stillness conveys it too. He is overcome. Recall earlier the way that we talked about the red light dancing on his helmet as he let the enemy cart the child away. Now here we see green blue reflected on his helmet, the colors that we associate with the Jedi and goodness and peace, a deliberate contrast to his earlier state. He's moved to act, powering down the ship, charging to the client's base to retrieve Baby Yoda, and a harrowing sight greets him. Baby Yoda's basket in the dumpster. Well, your blood runs absolutely 
cold. And think about the imagery. The egg-like basin that nestled the child now discarded like the shell of a mudhorn egg. Mando infiltrates the base with ease, destroying the gatekeeper droid, using a detonator to draw out the troopers, and then reminding us that, folks, these aren't Jango's OG clones. These are the original trilogy stormtroopers. they're bad at their jobs. That we know and love, and love them specifically because they aren't capable of hitting even a point-blank target. <laughs> You're just... They're just bad. Now, Mando's new armor does the trick when they do manage to land a shot, but boy, is landing a shot rare, and they fall like flies in many and varied ways. Death by blaster. Love it. Check. Death by flamethrower. Gruesome and... Cooking him in the armor. Let me just say this. That was mean. It's a little much. Just shoot him. You I thought it was mean. It was mean when he used the flamethrower on the mudhorn, too. I'd like to retire that. It's It's cruel. Death by grappling hook, vibroblade. Here's Check. my th- here's my thing with that. Yeah. Why are you trying to be stealthy now? You just blew a hole in the wall and shot people. I think he's just showing it off. Was cool. <laughs> it was cool. Death by whistling bird guided pellets. Stay tuned. Love that. Mando enters the room where LBY lies asleep under some kind of medical technology contraption that's doing something to him that we don't yet know about, but assume is either DNA or midichlorian extraction or some related cloning effort. An Imperial interrogation droid looming above him, the same model that was used on Princess Leia in A New Hope. About to inflict its cruel syringe, Mando shoots it down as Pershing begs, no, 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 please, please, no, 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 please, don't hurt him, it's just a child. Yeah, we get it, we understand it. That's why Mando is here, protecting (laughs) Baby Yoda at all costs from the likes of you, sir. More on Dr. Pershing's kind of vague allegiances later, but here we only have eyes for Mando and LBY, who looks so peaceful and tiny as the device scans him. What did you do to it? Mando demands. I protected him. I protected him. If it wasn't for me, he would already be dead. Mando scoops up LBY like a little basket of warm bread and a blanket. (laughs) Little loaf of warm bread and cradles him like a running back, hell bent on the touchdown, but also on avoiding the fumble, no matter what happens next. Well, Chow Yoda told football. Vanity Fair, Vanity Fair still watching pod with our good pal Joanna Robinson yes. and Anthony Bresnikan, that her father's love of Hong Kong action films was a huge influence on this episode. Quote, I tried to bring out a little hard boiled with the baby. Oh, great one. It was kind of an amazing thing because it was like coming back to classic cinema and filmmaking. So there's definitely a lot of my dad in that episode. Sadly, he didn't get to see this, but he would be very proud. He would probably also be in shock. The stormtroopers in Mando's path are no match for his will or his gadgets and weaponry because the greatest weapon he has is his bond with the LBY. <laughs> you do. He made a choice that he can't come back from. And as LBY looks at him from beneath the blanket, full sleepy and afraid, but grateful and content, Mando's arms whimpering as the whistling birds (laughs) do their work. It's clear that this foundling has found his home. Building that home together won't be easy, as we see right away. As soon as they exit the premises, all of the bounty hunters, Baby Yoda, Tracker Fobs, activate. And Mando is a member of the bounty hunters. Not anymore! (laughs) You're out, buddy! That means something more on that in a bit. But his allegiance to Baby Yoda and his desire to protect him means more to him now, period. Karga and the others surround Mando and Baby Yoda in the street, but Mando doesn't cower. The kid's coming with me, he says. We've wondered through the first two episodes if this anti-hero who we can't see and haven't gotten to know or understand can work his way into our hearts. That line. 
that choice helps to seal it. We're loyal to Mando now because he's loyal to Baby Yoda. Period. He's so determined to protect Baby Yoda that he even aligns in the moment with the astromech, a droid, which we know he hates. Hates him. Hates him. <laughs> he fucking he hates him. He actually does hate him. Yeah, he really does, <laughs> does not like them. Dislikes them. And in the bed of that droid speeder, after Mando is blasted and disintegrated and burned as many foes as he can, it feels for a moment before the Mandalorians arrive to help, oh. like all is lost. And in that moment of hopelessness, Mando looks down at Baby Yoda, this little bundle that he's about to die trying to protect. And Baby Yoda opens his eyes, as big as the world, in the open fold of that blanket cocoon. And he coos so sweetly and lovingly. It was really wonderful. And then, later, after Mando dispenses with Karga by shooting him, we think deliberately, in the exact spot where the Beskar is, he knows, guarding his heart, he and Baby Yoda take flight. Heading where, we don't yet know. But at least they're going together. And as they soar off, Baby Yoda's hand and head pop up preciously from the floor, reaching again for the knob. And this time, Papa Mando unscrews it for him. Let him have it. Plops it into Baby Yoda's hand. Commence cooing! Baby Yoda! Return Rebo after a word from sponsors. Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that sometimes life throws everything at you at once. Like a fender bender. When you're already late. When it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are there for you. Talk to one of our 19,000 State Farm agents via text, over the phone, in person, or using the State Farm app. Find one today at statefarm.com. Today's show is also brought to you by the Google Assistant. The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice in the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. Hey, Google. How far away is the moon? The moon is about 238,900 miles from Earth. A little help, hands-free. Just say, hey, Google, to get started. And now back to binge mode. Let's talk about the Mandalorians. Yes. Against the backdrop of everything we hear the Mandalorians and the Coverts say in this episode, keep in mind, Mandalore's war-torn history with conflict ravaging the planet so fully over the eons that even after the warriors went to live in exile on the moon of Concordia, the planet's surface was absolutely so decimated that people had to live inside domed cities rather than outside in the land. When the client severs Mandel's line of inquiry about what awaits LBY, he does so by saying, quote, that Beskar is enough to make a handsome replacement for your armor. Unfortunately, Finding a Mandalorian in these trying times is more difficult than finding the steel. And it's a very thinly veiled threat. But it's more effective as a reminder of the past than as a promise of anything in the future. The perennial conflicts that we see in Clone Wars and Rebels and elsewhere, warring against the Jedi, warring against the established, warring against themselves in various civil conflicts time and time again. That's the threat the client hangs over Mando with these words. And that's the history Mando finds pressing in on him when he goes to the Mandalorian gathering place beneath the city streaks, walking by his fellow Mandalorians, Camtono of Beskar in hand. And that Beskar hall draws every single eye. As walking through your office with a safe under your arm or driving yeah. into your parking lot in a Brinks truck, surely would. Some of the other boldest Mandalorians follow Mando into the armor, Smithy, as she unloads the bricks of Beskar. Their eyes on the prize Jealous and judgmental all at once. My armor has lost its integrity, Mando says. I may need to begin again. 
The armorer tells him she can form a full cuirass, a breastplate and a backplate, armor to cover the torso. Mando already previously had a Beskar helmet. He got a Beskar pauldron from his down payment. He's really leveling up here. This would be an order for your station, the armorer says, indicating that Mando's standing warrants this kind mm-hmm. of glam. And his reputation, as we've heard from the client and cargo, supports this, though oddly, his lack of a signet would seem incongruous with that level of a plume. We have a lot to learn still about these Mandalorian customs yeah, and yeah. Mando's place in them. That would be a great honor, he says of the offer of a curious. And his tone, as in his first scene with the armorer in chapter one, strikes a stark contrast to his demeanor out in the field. We're so bold and brash, ready to take charge. Here, he's deferential, docile, almost shy. And there's something fitting about Mando forging a new set of armor. In Mandalorian culture, armor is passed down often, generation after generation. In Star Wars Rebels, for example, Sabine Wren tells Ezra Bridger, quote, The armor I wear is 500 years old. I reforged it to my liking, but the battles, the history, the blood, all lives within it. The same goes for every Mandalorian. Mando's forging his armor here from scratch, from fresh Beskar. The Beskar is a precious metal to the Mandalorians. So the armor is still rooted in the place and its history. But this fresh forged kit feels fitting for Mando's arc. He's a foundling. He started over. And here with his armor, he's doing so again. But maybe this will be the armor that he hands down to his children or his clan members or even Baby Yoda himself. He'd have to reforge it. He could use the pauldron as his breastplate. Like Sabine would maybe paint it a different color. When our new friend, Heavy Infantry, a.k.a. Paz Vizla, a.k.a. Johnny Favs, more on that later Again with the Mandalorian (laughs) voices. Sees the unloaded steel, he's moved to act. These were cast in an imperial smelter, he says. These are the spoils of the Great Purge, the reason that we live hidden like sand rats. Our secrecy is our survival, the armorer replies. Our survival is our strength. Our strength was once in our numbers, Paz says. Now we live in the shadows and only come above ground one at a time. Now, this line sets the stage for the episode's concluding set piece when the Mandalorians rise in force as one rather than one at a time to come to Mando and Baby Yoda's aid. But again, it serves another purpose too, recalling the past while projecting the future. We don't yet know what the Great Purge is. Nothing that we've seen of Mandalore's past elsewhere in the canon quite aligns with how this show is describing the event. Quote, our world was shattered by the Empire with whom this coward shares tables, Paz says, clarifying at least some sense of time frame. The Great Purge occurred during the Empire's reign. So based on the information that we have Mm -hmm. at this time, we can deduce that it occurred after the events depicted not only in the Clone Wars, but also in Star Wars Rebels. In a recent article on Mandalorian history on StarWars.com, Kelly Knox wrote of the late events that Rebels covers, quote, the Empire deployed a weapon designed to penetrate the alloys in Mandalorian armor. That is, of course, the arc pulse generator, but Bo-Katan, Sabine, and the rebels destroyed it before the death toll climbed even higher. Victorious in the costly civil war, Bo-Katan accepted the dark saber, Jason's favorite, and Mandalore was united under one leader once again, but the conflict was only beginning. This is the key line here. The full power of the empire would be unleashed against the planet in the galactic civil war. So that unleashing of that full power must be when the great purge unfolded. More time frame clues momentarily. Something's unfolding here in the covert as well. Paz grabs for Mando's helmet and they come to blows, metal on metal, viral blades screeching against each other's steel cuirasses. No one intervenes physically and you get the sense that there's a single combat-like aspect to being challenged by another Mandalorian. Certainly that particular detail about Mandalorian culture is 
You see that in Rebels and you saw that in Clone Wars. But the armorer does attempt to verbally broker a peace. Quote, the Empire is no longer. And the Beskar has returned. A very odd but very key exchange ensues. She continues, when one chooses to walk the way of the Mandalore, you are both hunter and prey. How can one be a coward if one chooses this way of life? Have you ever removed your helmet? No, Manda replies. Chekhov's helmet. Has it ever been removed by others? Never, he says. This is the way, she says. And they all reply in chorus. This is the way. Well, if that's so, it is the new way. Yes, new way. Absolutely new. Because helmet removal has long been routine for yep. Mandalorian warriors. Sabine Wren and Satine's sister, Bo-Katan Kryze, and many other Mandalorians remove their helmets in Star Wars Rebels, and Dave Filoni is involved in both. Rebels is canon, so this became the way later on for reasons we don't And the reason we we're focusing know. on Rebels here is because it would be the closest in the canon timeline, and it was still the case then. Right. For reasons we don't yet know, but reasons that presumably stem from the Great Purge. Also, it's since been destroyed, but the Arc Pulse Generator in Rebels melted yes. Beskar armor, turning a sign of pride and strength into a weakness. Could the heavy discussion of the armor's eternal wearing be forecasting the return of a similar device? Or is it all building toward a dramatic Mando helmet reveal for some sexy time? Maybe both. Why not have both? Who knows? That helmet's coming off. Yeah, what do you think? What episode? Six? I think seven as a Game of Thrones, like yeah, penultimate. the penultimate I could see hammer. seven. Okay. I could see seven. Leaving aside for a moment how ludicrous it is to think that Mando and his fellows literally never remove their helmets. Like, how do they brush their teeth like we were saying earlier? Or wash their faces, wash their hair. Maybe Jason's dune comp is right and there's something inside of the armor that facilitates that. How are they eating? How are they kissing each other? How are they sexually gratifying their partners? How there's are they a, looking in the mirror knowing they're Pedro Pascal? There's, <laughs> so stuff, there's stuff in the armor that does be. all of it. Gotta be. Let's focus on the substance of this exchange, though. If you watch with closed captioning, you'll notice that the way in This Is The Way and The Way of the Mandalore Way, the word way is capitalized. Yep. This is clearly a creed, a mantra, something that cuts to the heart of Mandalorian tradition, maybe new Mandalorian tradition. It's also the first time that we've heard it. Nowhere else in Mandalorian yep. canon is this line, this is the way, present, let alone repeated with such consistency, indicating that perhaps it's sprung up like the new ways of life that Paz laments here in the wake of the Great Purge. Like the Ironborn parroting what is dead may never die or members of Admiral Adama's fleet echoing so say we all, there's a pledge in these words that the Mandalorians say to each other, a vow to uphold their specific way of life and protect the things that make that way of life so dear to them. With tempers soothed, the armorer asks what caused the damage to Mando's current armor and then tells him that he's earned the Mudhorn as his signet, which, recall, we learned in Chapter 1, had not yet been revealed. Mando refuses, saying that it wasn't a noble kill because an enemy helped him. When the armorer asks, why would an enemy do that? Mando says, with some hesitation and clearly a lot of guilt, mm -hmm. it did not know it was my enemy. That's because he's your friend. <laughs> there's a lot to parse here. First, Mando's clear pride and belief in the system and culture. Many people would say, Mudhorn signet? Awesome. Mm -hmm. Mando stays true to the values of his culture and refuses to confess the facts of the kill, living by honor rather than by pride. And it's an encouraging insight into his personality and worth as a hero, both of which we're still learning about on the decelerated pace one faces when watching a figure in a mask. I think it's important, you know, whenever 
whenever you're presented with a character who is not a straightforward hero or an anti-hero, what have you, what keeps that character from being an unambiguous villain or an outlaw? A code. Mm-hmm. That character has to have a code in the Mandalorian, clearly does. What's more, this exchange highlights how the Mandalorians view combat and even tasks. Quote, if you're not with me, Anakin once said, then you're my enemy. To which Obi-Wan famously replied, only a Sith deals in absolutes. But it seems it's quite a bit more common than that. If Mando was sent to capture Baby Yoda, Baby Yoda must, by definition of the bounty hunter's code and his training as a Mandalorian warrior, be the opposition. LBY's ability to penetrate that standard is astonishing. Truly. Lucky for Mando, without need of a signet, he gets whistling birds, which come in quite handy, as we've noted, when he whips them around. Kind of like the bullet and wanted slaying the stormtroopers encircling him. And as in chapter one, Mando expresses a desire to see the excess Beskar go to the foundlings. As it should always be, the armorer says, the foundlings are the future. How many Mandalorian families survived the Great Persian Tact? We don't know, but it's clear that one family here seems to have forged around whatever was left. And after another course of this is the way the Beskar begins to boil. And as the armorer makes Mando's new suit, we once again flash back with him to the formative event in his life, the moment when he became a foundling. And again, the hammering of the smith leads him to recall this. It triggers this memory of the blast from that day when he lost his parents. And while the flashback is the same moment in Mando's life, we do see more of it this time, including, crucially, multiple shots of B2 super battle Mm -hmm. droids, key cogs in the Separatist army. This clearly is why Mando displays such dislike to this day for droids. They murdered his family and destroyed his village. A village, by the way, that does not, at least at first glance, appear to be a domed city of Mandalore. What's more, it's seemingly increasingly likely that this event Mm -hmm. that the Mando is flashing back to and the Great Purge, which everyone keeps mentioning, are two separate events. Different. While some B2s survived the Clone Wars, the bulk of them were deployed by the Federation during those battles. The Great Purge, as outlined earlier, would have followed the events depicted in Rebels, thus also after the Clone Wars. The Imperial Seal on the Beskar claimed in the Great Purge is also an Imperial Seal, but the Imperial Empire, of course, didn't exist during the Clone Wars. What's more, Mando is a small child in those flashbacks, which, assuming his character is roughly Pedro Pascal's age, mm-hmm. now in nine years after the Battle of Yavin, would align well with the Mando having been a kid during the Clone Wars, during the Purge, during the Galactic Civil War. He would likely have been in his late teens, 20s. Mm-hmm. As we've theorized before, maybe Mando was not a Mandalorian by birth, but was adopted into the culture. Maybe he was, and it was raised as a foundling by Mandalorians other than his birth parents. The question of Who finds Mando is key and likely to reveal itself to us next because when the bunker in which Mando is hiding, much like Jin Rogue One, Mm -hmm. opens, the banging of the smith now recalling that the clanking of that lid, a B-2 is staring down at him. Gun cocked. Someone stopped that droid from shooting him. Who was it? Mandalorians, perhaps? Maybe so. They're certainly the ones who come to his rescue here. Mando, never intending to actually hand over Baby Yoda, asks Karga how he knows he can trust him. And trust is a precious thing in the Star Wars universe, just as it is in our universe. We saw in the Mandalorian covert earlier in the episode how fragile it can be, even between the precious few members of the Mandalorian people. How they repeat their mantra to each other to remind themselves of that pledge, even as things like Imperial stamps on Beskar blocks call the ties that bind them into question. But at the end of the day, their shared history and their desire for a shared future trumps any petty squabbles or divergences beneath the dust-strewn streets. 
Despite sheltering underground to ensure their safety, only surfacing one at a time to protect their dwindling ranks, they rise here as one, jetpacks casting them into the sky to rain down hell on Karga and the bounty hunters. They risked not only their lives here, but something far more meaningful to them, the exposure of their people, of their covert. But what are they protecting ultimately, if not each other? Mandalorian history may be soaked in blood, but we see here the pride that unites them in the face of oppression and we think maybe near extinction based on the way they're describing their ranks so far as we can tell. They might not like each other, but they're sworn to each other. It is the way. Get out of here, Paz tells Mando. We'll hold them off. And Mando says, you're going to have to relocate the covert. This is the way, Paz replies. This is the way, Mando says. Pain turmoil, a nomadic existence, but also the promise that someone will be there to help you, tethered by a bond as strong as that Beskar steel. Will Mando and Baby Yoda go to the site of the new covert? Will they, knowing that the tracking fobs make them a target, go elsewhere instead to keep the Mandalorian safe? We'll soon see. Here, as Paz jetpacks into the air to salute the departing Mando, a clear Iron Man nod from former Iron Man director Favs, and of course, plays happy. And Mando says, I got to get one of those. But at least he has something else, a family. And thanks to the Mandalorian's help, Baby Yoda does too. Is it possible that the show's title is in fact a reference to Baby Yoda being adopted as a Mandalorian foundling? Could he be the Mandalorian? Shouts to the person who tweeted this at us the minute the show launched that theory. Looking like it might be right. It's a a usual suspects kind of reveal if that is the case. (laughs) That would be amazing. Would be wonderful. The client and Dr. Pershing and the mystery man. Your reputation was not unwarranted. (laughs) The client says to Mando when he does what all the others fail to do, delivering the asset. Mando doesn't bother saying thanks or exchanging pleasantries before asking, hey, dude, how many other fobs are out there? Considering how many platitudes the client issued in chapter one about life as a bounty hunter, Mando might have expected a certain level of honor in their agreement. The only allegiance here is to completing the task at hand and to delivering what the mysterious he we hear Pershing and the client discuss later in the episode wants and to whatever imperial remnant cause that man and his minions serve. There's no loyalty, per se, to Mando or their agreement, which the client is happy to cop to here. The asset was of extreme importance to me. (laughs) I had to ensure its delivery. But to the winner, go the spoils. Incredible. Karga got some of those spoils too. And when Mando goes to the puck disseminator for another job, he makes sure to share his views on the clientele with Karga. They work for the Empire, he says. What are they doing here? The Empire's gone, Mando. All that are left are mercenaries and warlords. So which are the client and Dr. Pershing? Or perhaps more accurately, which do they report up to? A warlord in the Imperial Remnant, perhaps? We'll come back to that in just a second. Cargo continues, if it bothers you, just go back to the core and report them to the New Republic. To which Mando says, that's a joke. Well, that's not exactly a ringing endorsement of the new power structure after the Empire's fall. Some of that speaks to the New Republic being modeled differently by design, with power spread out more egalitarianly. And some speaks clearly to Mando and the Mandalorian's own history with power structures. And then, more still, some speaks to a lack of faith in the government's ability to actually thwart the rise of evil again, or the existence of it in this moment. A lack of faith that will sadly be proven at least temporarily valid by the rise of the First Order. When Mando scouts the building before attacking, 
through the lens of his rifle, he hears the client say, I don't care. I order you to extract the necessary material and be done with it. After a brief inaudible bit that surely contains all the crucial info. Yeah. You know when they gonna, uh, make it gone. inaudible for six seconds, yeah. that's all the stuff you need. Pershing's heard to say, he has explicitly ordered us to bring it back alive. Who is he? Gus? <laughs> Grand Moff, the chicken Grand Moff Gus. Well, we can't say for sure, but we can presume and deduce. Yes. He seems likely to be Giancarlo Esposito's Moff Gideon, a mm-hmm. former Galactic Empire soldier who rose to the ranks to lead his own troops. Could Gideon be the one that Pershing and the client report to? Could he be attempting to restore galactic rule? A key figure in the impending rise of the First Order? Could he be potentially Snoke, the one-day supreme leader of the First Order? How about Palpy? whom episode nine's run-up leads us to believe is still around, either as someone who is never dead, a force ghost, or a clone of himself. Dan Casey at Nerdist had an out there, but fun theory. Mm-hmm. What about our dude Thrawn? That would be Certainly amazing. active <laughs> during amazing. this particular time of galactic history. It does seem like it has to be Moff Gideon because Giancarlo Esposito was like pretty heavily marketed in yeah. the run-up to the season and has not been in it three out of eight episodes. And it feels seems- like that introduction is coming in a big way. But he could and- then be reporting up to someone else still. That's Maybe true. Maybe he's reporting up to Snoke. That said, listen, LBY, of course, is absolutely important and vital to our hearts. Mm-hmm. Seems a little bit below the notice of someone like Thrawn who's like doing a lot of stuff at once. That's why the Snoke possibility is more interesting. A right. force user. Right. Scouting, always. So whoever he is, and we're obviously going to find out soon, Pershing and the client seem loyal, but in a way that stems from different motivations for each of them. Fear as much as true belief on Pershing's side and also this experimental medical drive. And then greed and a lust for power and control on the client's side. And though the client has conveniently and mysteriously vanished by the time Mando penetrates the fortress— Werner, nowhere to be seen. Mando's interaction with Pershing in front of Baby Yoda's medical bay is very telling. Pershing, as in chapter one, is committed to keeping Baby Yoda alive. Client doesn't seem to care at all. What are Gideon's ends? Should Gideon, in fact, be the boss that they speak of? It's possible that Pershing's display of empathy and protection stems from a desire to be able to just continue his medical exploits. He wants him alive so he can keep running tests. But maybe there's something more to it. He seems to be loyal to something other than just the boss. And we can see clearly in this episode the Camino cloner symbol on his arm patch. He's the one tasked with extracting this material from Baby Yoda. Now, is Baby Yoda a clone, as we've theorized, and one that they're seeking to recover for their research and presumably something foul? And while well, whether Baby Yoda is naturally born being or a clone himself, whether he's Yoda or Yaddle's kid or just another member of the species, again, or a clone, it's likely that Pershing and his pod here are attempting to clone baby Yoda, or at least to be able to replicate something about his force. Get your dirty paws off of him! Just back up. Stop it! (laughs) The material that they're seeking to extract seems likely to be either DNA or some sweet midichlorians. To attempt to create force-sensitive clones, we you have to assume this is what they're up to. Give him a frog, he's hungry. He's got to be starving. To weaponize maybe the force powers in some other fashion. We don't know exactly what they want to do yet, but it seems like it's got to connect to the 
for sensitivity and midichlorians in some way. The extraction talk almost defies comprehension <sighs> that it could be anything else. If other hunters, though, like IG-11, had orders to terminate, and even Mando had the okay to show proof of termination for the lower payment yielding death, how would they have extracted what they needed then? Would proof have needed to come in the form of a body? I don't, I don't even want, I don't want to think about it Awful. either. But for plot purposes, we need to. It is horrifying to even contemplate. Later. When challenging Mando, Karga says, don't hit the target to all the other bounty hunters. And remember, they all had, we assume, the same orders as IG-11 to kill. So are there new orders now that the target is back in the base and they've assessed it and know what they're working with? Or is this just common sense? The client doesn't seem to have changed his mind. Does the mystery he have any interaction with anyone beyond Pershing and the client? We don't know. A lot of questions here. Hopefully answers coming soon. But for now, we know the only thing that matters. Baby Yoda is safe, at least in this moment. Pershing might not be for long. Finish your business quickly, Mando overhears the client saying, as I no longer can guarantee That's your safety. That's a very, very interesting line. From whom? Yeah. Return we will after another quick break. Today's episode of Binge Mode Star Wars is brought to you by Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. The new action-adventure game from Respawn Entertainment, available now. Jedi Fallen Order is the Star Wars game that you've been waiting for. Taking place between Star Wars Revenge of the Sith and Star Wars A New Hope, you can play as Cal Kestis, a Jedi Padawan turned fugitive. After narrowly escaping Order 66 and the Jedi Purge, you're on a quest to rebuild the Jedi Order. Wield a lightsaber, hone iconic force powers, and complete your training to become a powerful Jedi. All while staying one step ahead of the Empire. I'm enjoying it. I'll say this. Having a double-sided lightsaber, Darth Maul style, is basically everything I've ever dreamed about. Classic. Here's, here's my favorite thing so far. BD-1. New droid. Little buddy. Just delightful. I love it. I always love a new droid, and BD-1 buddy, my sweet buddy, has not disappointed. Become a Jedi in Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. Available now on Xbox, PS4, and PC. Rated 2 for Team. And now back to binge mode. Jason, you have taken both commission and payment. Is it not the code of the pod that these events are now forgotten? (laughs) No? No! Well, then let's help everyone remember. Please gather the Padawan learners, head to the Jedi Temple, teach us everything we need to know about the Bounty Hunters Guild and the Bounty Hunter's Code. Bounty Hunters, believe it or not, respect sentient life. Or they're supposed to, at least. According to the Bounty Hunter's Code or Creed. Now, what we know about the code, the rules which, at least in theory, are supposed to govern Bounty Hunter behavior comes from Legends canon. And I got most of it from the book The Bounty Hunter Code from the Files of Boba Fett, which is a fun Legends era book that it's like the handbook for bounty hunters that includes handwritten notes from various famous bounty hunters over the years. Wonderful. It's like Ron and Harry scribbling in the margins of (laughs) Quidditch Through the Ages. And certainly the Mandalorian has not been shy about redefining what we knew, thought we knew anyway, about Mandalorians. So with those caveats, let's talk about the Bounty Hunter's Code, and the Guild. Now, in this handbook, there are six tenets of the creed. There are seven elsewhere on the internet, but we're just going to talk about these six. In the eyes of the organization, adherence to these rules are what separates 
a true bounty hunting professional from basically a hired thug. So rule number one, people don't have bounties. What does this mean? This rule cuts to the core of kind of moral equivalence of the bounty hunter. Once a price has been posted through proper channels on a individual, that person ceases to be a person with rights and due process under the law. Convenient. That individual is, according to the laws of a system somewhere, a criminal, and therefore fair game for the bounty hunter. Rule number two, kill only when necessary. If a bounty hunter kills a target in the course of a fair fight, that's not great. But it's the risk one takes when one takes up the profession. However, killing in cold blood, just walking up to a, a target in a cantina somewhere and popping a blaster cap in his head without attempting to capture, or even worse, executing a target after you've taken the prisoner is grounds for removal from the guild as it hurts the guild's reputation and is against everything the guild stands for. Rule number three, don't murder your colleagues. Nah. Eh. Straightforward <laughs> stuff here. <laughs> Tell that to Mando. On certain occasions, as we've seen in these three episodes, when a target is particularly high value, there may be multiple hunters working independently on a target. In such cases, a hunter must not, underline, must not just bump off competition, even though it would make their jobs easier. Trandoshans, I'm talking to you. But again, maybe that's why they came with those stunning axes in order to just Stun Mando. That said, that also breaks a rule. We'll get to that. Rule number four, don't mess with a colleague's mission. An extension of rule number three, obviously, in cases such as Little Baby Yoda with various hunters on the scent, this rule kind of becomes optional. Sometimes, as with IG-11 and Mando, an accommodation can be found if various hunters can talk before they uh, settle in for the fight. Sometimes, again, with our Trandoshans, that doesn't happen. Now. Boba Fett was apparently notorious for not honoring this rule. Mm. Rule number five, no executions. You've just captured your bounty. Maybe your carbon freezing unit is malfunctioning and you don't have the food or the patience to waste on a captive and you have a long road ahead of you. That doesn't mean you just, again, pop a blaster into the side of your target's head. And just leave it at that. Bounty hunters are not assassins. I repeat, are not assassins. No matter what people in the galaxy think. Remember, Django outsourced Sazam. He didn't go out there assassinating people on his own. He doesn't do that. He's a bounty hunter. Finally, rule number six. Bounty hunters must help fellow bounty hunters. Space is a cold, vast, and unforgiving place. If a fellow hunter asks for aid, sends out a distress beacon, their colleagues must respond. Moreover, if a hunter formally asks another hunter for help in taking down a target, that hunter, after negotiation of a fair price, must accept. Beyond these rules of professionality, there are guild regulations, which a bounty hunter must adhere to, to remain a member in good standing. The most obvious is pay your dues, people. Pay them. Pay up. Dues and commissions on bounties is how the guild keeps the lights on. According to legends, it costs 2,000 credits per year to maintain one standing in the guild. 
that base fee can increase depending on if the hunter belongs to an additional affiliate bounty hunter guild. And it does not take into account other costs such as penalties, maintenance fees, and other costs that the guild might see fit to tack on. Guild rules are as follows. Members must accept jobs given by guild contractors. Now, this is obviously mostly for the lower level hunters and rookie members. A good guild master will make sure that hunters are equal to the task of taking down a particular target, right? You're not just going to give the most difficult job to some greenhorn. Doesn't do the guild's reputation any good to put an inexperienced hunter on a case of a difficult subject. If you're Boba or Bosk or the Mando, you get to ask your contractor what they have and then pick and choose the job that interests you. Not the best of the best. You just take the job you're offered and be quiet. Furthermore, do not ask questions. This is the rule that the client pointed out to Mando that he was breaking. The job is to acquire the target. Everything else is none of the bounty hunter's mission. That's it. The target is the target. You don't ask questions. You don't ask your contractor and you don't ask if in rare cases you are put in contact directly with a client, you do not ask the client what's up. You just get the target. That's it. Again, come to the aid of guild members in distress. Another one, important. Space is big. Don't work in another guild member's territory. When you are given a contract, you are also given a location. If your target flees the system where you are hunting, you must then ask permission of your guild master to pursue the target into another system. This is all just to make sure that you don't go into another bounty hunter's mission area and fuck up what they're doing. And finally, the guild mediates all disputes between bounty hunters and decides the fate of those who have transgressed the rules. Otherwise, bounty hunters would just be out here killing each other, and we can't have that. Members who have been accused of breaking guild rules or not living up to the bounty hunter code or have crossed other members are placed on trial in what's known as a, quote, hunter's lodge. All members who can attend gather in the local guild combat area to witness the plaintiff and defendant present their cases. The members then vote to decide the verdict. Most disagreements, as one would expect, boil down to petty grudges, personal vendettas, you poached on my territory, I poached on your territory, so on and so forth. In cases like that, the penalty is usually in the form of cash restitution and very, very rarely weaponless duels or duels with swords can be arranged to settle the scores. For more serious incidents, members can vote to expel a hunter from the guild, which is quite potentially a death sentence since members in good standing would then be able to do whatever to that individual. As long as a hunter follows those rules, they can enjoy the many benefits of guild membership, such as training. Guild members can train to improve their skills or just to stay sharp at any of the numerous guild facilities across the galaxy during the Imperial era. The Empire obviously could not call on the Jedi to maintain law and order across the galaxy. And as one would expect, sending stormtroopers here and there would stretch the Imperial forces too thin. Therefore, they forged a close relationship with the Guild, secretly allowing them access to buildings formerly owned by the Jedi for use as their own training facilities. Expertise is provided by ex-hunters as part of the Guild's handsome suite of retirement options, folks. The Guild supplies members with equipment, weaponry, and armor, and even, when needed, subsidized transportation services via guild-owned vehicles or 
third-party characters that have special business relationships with the guild. As we saw after Mando's run-in with the Mudhorn, bounty hunters are only as good as their equipment. Therefore, repair services on ships, weapons, and armor can be obtained at guild-affiliated shops and spaceports and docking yards across the galaxy. Training, supply, and repairs are provided in many cases free of charge. <laughs> that is what the dues pay for, folks, and it's wonderful. In trouble with the law? It can happen. Dial 888-888-MANDO. No. The Guild offers legal defense and sanctuary for members charged with crimes by local systems. Local systems. That's important because galactic law does apply to bounty hunters also. So you're a bounty hunter, say, and you run afoul of the Republic or later the Empire or the New Republic. Sorry, you're going to have to answer to the galactic justice system. However, as we saw in this episode, that kind of runs both ways. If the guild has an issue, like, for instance, ex-imperials running around the outer rim kidnapping force-sensitive infants who are 50 years old, that falls under galactic law, and running it all the way up the flagpole to Coruscant is often more trouble than it's worth. And in that case, it's not uncommon for a bounty hunter to just handle issues themselves, whether or not that's lawful. That's not guild policy. That's just reality. The guild also has a PR budget. That's right, a PR budget. So <laughs> guild members, the best of the best, are seen as such and garner the respect and a healthy dose of fear as the true professionals they are. And this helps in opening doors when a bounty hunter walks into a new system to talk to a governor or talk to whoever they need to talk to. The guild, it's great. Great stuff. Mel, yeah. take some time off. Enjoy <laughs> yourself. <laughs> I'll take you to the Twi'lek healing baths. Sounds fucking great. Honestly, when can we leave? Yeah. I want my next job. Just like wrap a head tail around <laughs> me and just sink into the baths. I love it. Well then, let's roll like BB-8 through eight of our favorite insights and observations from this episode. Lightning around style, you go first. Number one. Let's take a moment here to celebrate yes. this long overdue milestone in Star Wars history. In helming this episode, Deborah Chow became the first woman to direct a live action Star Wars installment. Chow will also direct the penultimate episode of the season and Bryce Dallas Howard. Amazing. That's right. Who has recently, recently been seen comparing her cat to Baby Yoda on social media. Incredible. Which, same. We'll direct chapter four. Episode 9 also brings more Star Wars directing history this year with Victoria Mahoney, the second unit director on Rise of Skywalker, becoming the first black woman to direct on the Star Wars series, period. Incredible. Chow, who's also the first director of Asian heritage to helm a live-action Star Wars story, isn't leaving the galaxy far, far away. She's going to be the lead director on the recently announced Disney Plus Obi-Wan Kenobi series. Oh! Amazing! Which, based on Chow's comments, seem to be well underway already. When Sepinwall asked her for the Rolling Stone Q&A how much she'd been able to track the reaction to The Mandalorian since it launched, what this first experience with the Disney Plus Star Wars experience had been like, she said, quote, I haven't seen a ton, honestly, because I'm quite deep in the other one. Deep! Deep. We cannot wait to take our first steps with Chow into a larger Obi-Wan world. Chow knew that getting to direct Baby Yoda here, though, was a very special thing. In that interview with Sepinwall, she said, quote, 
on set, you could feel it with the crew. Everyone was in love with Baby Yoda. Oh <laughs> we were hoping it would translate, and it did happily. When you've got even tough grips who are falling in love with a little creature, you know that you have something. It was an amazing mix of visual effects and puppetry, and just getting to create something special that ended up feeling very human and like a real living, breathing character. It's definitely one of my favorite characters I've got to direct. You know, Incredible. Taking, taking photos on sets is obviously— you frowned upon, especially with something like Star Wars, which you just can't afford to have yeah. spoilers out there. It must have been absolutely torturous oh my God. to have access to little baby Yoda and not be able to take a selfie with him. I, I assume everyone has like 4,000 stored on their phone and they're just waiting to be able to send them into the world. I, I would not have been able to control myself. No way. Number two. <laughs> We also took another step this week into Wilro Hood's world, as we noted in our chapter one pod. The client's mention of a Cam Tono harkened back to Empire Strikes Back when an extra running through Cloud City during the evacuation is seen holding what fans long assumed to be an ice cream maker and what was, in fact, made from an ice cream machine. The Cam Tono mm-hmm. returned in chapter three. It's more than just a mention, but in all of its ice cream machine glory, giving us cause to celebrate Wilro Hood, whom fans long referred to as Ice Cream Guy and was eventually named in the Star Wars customizable card game in 1997. If you're interested in learning more about the Star Wars customizable card game, check out Ben Lindbergh's Ringer feature. The character's name became canon in the Star Wars card trader game. He even got his own action figure in 2009, not to mention consistent cosplay appreciation at Star Wars Celebration and other Star Wars conventions. Star Wars fans got a hint that the ice cream maker might be making a return in The Mandalorian when, during production, John Favreau posted a photo of the prop on his Instagram, much as he did with R5, the IG assassination droid, other Star Wars Easter eggs that have surfaced so far. According to Vanity Fair, the Camtona that Hood fled with contained information about rebel fuel purchases. Hmm. For many, though, the nature of what resided inside remained a great mystery. The client's use of the Camtono as a safe for Beskar show that Camtonos are used for storing valuables. But clearly, based on Karga's suggestion for Mando getting a Camtono full of spice, for recreational use, the object can store pretty much anything of value. User's discretion. Number three. Ah, speaking of spice. Uh, that suggestion from Karga goes as uh, follows. Mando, enjoy your rewards. Buy a Camtono of spice. By the time you come out of hyperdrive, you'll have forgotten all about it. Indeed, Spice, of course, has come up many times before on Star Wars, most notably when we visit the Spice Mines of Kessel and Solo, a Star Wars story. Spice is also mined on Ryloth, Naboo, and elsewhere. And it's a medicinal mineral extracted and converted by many into an illicit narcotic drug. Recall that instead of listening to Padme's clearly valid and correct it's Dooku dummies theory. (laughs) Mace Windu said the oxymoronic Jedi intelligence indicated that disgruntled spice miners on the moons of Naboo were behind the assassination attempts against her. Recall also that until Luke learned the truth about Anakin's Jedi history, he'd grown up believing that his father had worked on a spice freighter. And of course, recall that Han's run-in with Jabba stemmed from ditching his smuggled spice to avoid Empire Even detection. Even I get boarded sometimes. <laughs> okay? Man, I'd like to board him. Oh my God. On and on. Hide in his hatch. <laughs> you can hide in mine. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> on and on. <laughs> the spice surfacing Hello. examples go. So spice is prevalent in the galaxy and in our story. 
It's also surely a nod to a central influence on George Lucas. Frank Herbert's Dune, which the you heard us mention melange. earlier, in which melange, a drug casually called the spice, plays a pivotal role. Mm. We learn more about spices' narcotic potency in the Clone Wars series, and though the term has become a catch-all among characters and fans alike, there are multiple variants. Not every form of spice was illegal, though with some types serving valuable medicinal functions. Still, the illicit nature of much of spice made it a rich resource for smugglers and crime syndicates, including those pesky pikes and huts. For more on spice, watch NBA Desktop every Friday. Number four, Mando doesn't take Karga's spice-centric suggestion, but he does collect another bounty puck from him. This one featuring, as Karga says, the best one of the lot in yet another incredible line reading from <laughs> Carl Weathers. <laughs> he amazing. continues, a nobleman's son, Skip Bale. Looks like you're headed to the ocean dunes of Karnak. Since it now seems immensely unlikely that Mando will carry out the job, given that doing so would mean heading to yeah. a location that Karga, who's now hunting him, knows he might hit— we have to wonder what we're deprived of seeing. Though we don't get a name for the nobleman or the bail skipping son, the kid in question is clearly a Mon Calamari, the most mm. delicious alien race of the entire galaxy, <laughs> just in time for Thanksgiving. Quote, oh, the ocean dunes of Karnak sounds quite lovely. And if it also sounds new, that's because it is just the latest locale introduced to us for the first time on the Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. Can't say whether it's a planet or a moon, but given that Mando's reputation stems from being the best in the Parsec, we can at least infer that it's in the same parsec as the Outer Rim Karga Cantina on the still unnamed planet on which this arm of the guild operates. Number five. As we discussed earlier today, we also can't yet say for sure when and where Mando's flashback occurs, but one clue about who his family was might come from their garb. Mando and his parents are wearing red robes in the flashback, which recall the red robes that the Wookiees wear on Life Day, a holy day that centers on honoring family and joy. The Life Day robes are plain, while the flashback robes appear to feature intricate patterns on the chests and wrists, so maybe there's nothing to this at all. Plenty of characters in Star Wars wear robes, of course, and plenty of characters in Star Wars like Mm -hmm. red. But if there's a connection, what might it mean? While Life Day is a Wookiee holiday observed on their forested mid-rim homeworld of Kashyyyk, traditionally celebrated at the Tree of Life there, but also observed by Wookiees and others across the galaxy. And crucially, the Mandalorian itself has given us further proof that Life Day is marked by more than just the Wookiees. In Chapter 1, the Mithral that Mando captures says he's hoping to get home in time for Life Day. And in Legends canon, the holiday, which was introduced to the masses in the infamous Star Wars holiday special, spreads widely beyond the home world as a way for many to toast life in the face of imperial rule and death. In the holiday special... Leia says, quote, this holiday is yours, but we all share with you the hope that this day brings us closer to freedom and to harmony and to peace. No matter how different we appear, we're all the same in our struggle against the power of evil and darkness. I hope that this day will always be a day of joy in which we can confirm our dedication and our courage. Perhaps Mando and his family were attempting to display such courage and celebrate life in just such a fashion. Number six. Given the attention paid to the Mandalorian signet again in this episode, it behooves us to take a moment to talk about a symbol of yet another sort, the mythosaur Mm -hmm. skull sigil, the sign of the Mandalore, the ruler of the Mandalorian people. We've seen it several times now. Above the entrance to the armory where the armorer and the tribal leader works, the mythosaur, which Quill cited to Mando when trying to give him courage to keep riding the Blurg in Chapter 1, is a dragon-like beast native to Mandalore, which grew massive in size and numbers until the humans arrived on the planet to make it their own. 
Mandalore I took a bone from the skeleton of a mythosaur and crafted a mask, which was passed down for generations to Mandalore after Mandalore, just as armor is passed down generation after generation in Mandalorian culture. Though the armor is not wearing the bone mask, which fell out of use thousands of years before the events of the show, her mask does have a skull-like effect and also a crown-like effect, which is fitting because the Mandalorians use the word Kirby's to refer to their leader's crown after the age of the bone mask. That word translates to mythosaur skull. The skull sigil is one more indicator that even though this group of Mandalorians lived underground before emerging to help Mando and Baby Yoda, they remain fiercely committed to protecting and connecting to their history. Don't be surprised to see the mythosaur skull sigil at the next covert the tribe establishes, or even as a tattoo on the bodies of some of the Mandalorians should they ever take a time out on the way and remove their armor. Dare to dream. Number seven. As we noted above, the Mandalorian subtitled as Heavy Infantry is actually named Paz Vizsla. And though he's played in the suit physically by Tate Fletcher, who also played the thug that Mando fights in the opening scene of chapter one, Paz is voiced by none other than series creator Jon Favreau. And this is notable for a few reasons. First, Favs has previously played two other Star Wars characters. So now he and Fletcher are both on the ever-growing list of actors who've played more than one Star Wars character. Some other highlights from that list include Mark Hamill, who in addition to his obviously famous role as Luke Skywalker, also voiced Darth Bane in The Clone Wars. Sam Witwer, a.k.a. Aiden from Being Human, crashed down from Battlestar, two of my faves, who voiced Maul in Rebels and Clone Wars and Solo and numerous characters in Star Wars video games. Kenny Baker, who played both R2, and Paplu the Ewok in Return of the Jedi. On and on and on the list goes. It's a proud tradition, but that brings us to number two, because Favs appears to have done something rather unique here. He's voiced two Mandalorians. He really likes Mandalorians. It's amazing. Favs, who also voiced Rio in Solo, a Star Wars story, had a recurring role in the Clone Wars series as Pre Visla, the Concordian governor and Death Watch leader whom Jason told you all about in our Chapter 1 podcast, Jedi Temple, when discussing the war against Duchess Satine's pacifist Mandalorian government. While Pre's last name is spelled V-I-Z-S-L-A and Paz's last name appears as V-I-Z-L-A in the episode's credit, no S, the one-letter spelling difference may be either a mistake or an in-world change over the years. Either way, it's reasonable to assume that Paz is either a descendant of Pre or that he hails from other members of Clan Visla, whose sigil eventually became the sign of Death Watch itself. Whether Paz Vizsla's name is merely a nod to Favreau's Clone Wars past or an indicator of an actual in-story connection that's still to be revealed, it's a very fun Easter egg for Star Wars TV fans. Potentially another spelling mistake working its way into Star Wars canon. <laughs> Looking at you, Sifo-Dyas! Number eight! More than one object in line in this episode recalled our dear Princess Leia. First, yes. and most overtly, was Karga's Because I'm your only hope line. Amanda, a clear nod for viewers to Leia's iconic Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. This will probably be the last time that greedy Beskar mad bounty boss reminds us of our noble rebel leader. We also had reason to recall Leia when Mando went back for Baby Yoda. First, when he gazed down at the dumpster storing LBY's basket, because beyond that, leaning against the wall, rested the same poles that Leia, Luke, and Han use in a new hope to try and prevent the trash compactor from closing in on them. And, of course, we know a true moment of terror when we see the Imperial interrogation droid moving toward LBY. Leia, of course, stared down an interrogation droid on the Death Star in A New Hope when Darth Vader unknowingly <laughs> yeah. tough, sanctioned the torture of his own daughter. Tough look for our guy, 
Darth. Extremely tough luck. She'll die before she tells you anything. Leave that to me. (laughs) Jason. Yes. They all hate you because you're a legend. I love it. Just like today's winner. Every episode, we're going to honor the character who rallied the troops, advanced the cause. And today, the winner of our Medal of Bravery is... Mando. Of course, listen, with the obvious caveat that little baby Yoda is the winner of every single episode and every single scene and every single Forever. moment. Forever. Of this show, we have to tip our helmet to Mando and his fellow Mandalorians for honoring this podcast mantra and protecting LBY at all costs. At all costs. There is still a Camtona's worth of information that we don't know about Mando, yes. but after this episode, we know something crucial. Despite his blank disposition, he has a heart and he listens to it, even if doing so means violating conventions and codes and in some ways even common sense. And after some questionable combat competence on Arvella 7 in Chapter 2, Mando showed in this episode that, as the client said, his reputation is not unwarranted, crushing his opposition in combat despite being outnumbered on numerous occasions and ultimately needing help to escape. He is tech, he is smarts, He used his allies and again displaying a surprising and encouraging willingness to team up for someone in such a solitary line of work. Yes. Mando also leveled up in another major way, securing the Beskar payment and converting it into a full suit of armor with whistling trinkets attached. And even though he refused his Mudhorn signet, his tribe deemed that he had earned it, clearly a milestone in a Mandalorian warrior's life and career, albeit not one that Mando felt he has yet to truly reach. But best of all, Mando has... A little baby Yoda's seal of approval. All the that matters. on LBY's face as he gazed back at Mando while being handed over in the client's lair spoke to a real connection. Oh and it's good enough for LBY. Therefore, it is good enough for us. Ah, protect him. All right, friends. We, for one, celebrate your success because it is our success as well. Just as we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are to hop back in the speeder and continue to explore the galaxy, and that you'll join us again next time. Until then, remember, this is the way. Mando, you're a legend. What are you doing? Oh, sorry, I'm brushing my teeth in my helmet. What? Yeah, there's like a little motorized toothbrush in there. I just smile and I brush my teeth like that. So I don't take off my helmet. I don't even scratch my face. It shaves me too. It puts droplets in my eye, picks my nose, scratches my ear, cuts my hair. Everything happens inside the helmet. And then it turns the hair and the boogers and the saliva and stuff into little protein capsules that I then eat.